0: Uh, One of my favorite uh, SNL skits of late is the Black Jeopardy skit that has a a few repeated episodes. And then one of the most recent ones was um, where Tom Hanks plays a character who's like a redneck uh, wearing a uh, Make America Great hat again. And so if you haven't watched it before, the context is kind of this Jeopardy, but Black Jeopardy. And so it's kind of this idea of like, uh, the African-American perspective on Jeopardy, the questions are kind of African-American centric. Uh, and you know, the characters in this particular uh, skit, they seem to be kind of coming more from a, you know, having grown up in poverty, maybe in the projects. And so obviously Tom Hanks' character really doesn't fit in. And everyone else there is kind of shocked that he's been even participating in Black Jeopardy. And so again, all the categories are kind of African-American centric and black culture and, and Tom Hanks' car- character's name is Doug. Doug's not supposed to get it. Doug's not supposed to be able to answer any of these questions, right? And then so one of the, the, question, one of the categories was they out here saying. And so the question uh, was, and, the, and the, the host says this, they out here saying, the new iPhone wants your, your thumbprint for your protection. And, and Doug beeps in and he, you know, he gets it. He gets to be the one who answers. And he says, what is, I don't think so. That's how they get you. And the host goes, yes, yes, that's it. That's it. Like he's shocked that Doug like got the right answer. And the other contestants are like, yeah, me neither. I don't trust that. And Doug goes on to say, I hear that go straight to the government. And the host goes, Well, yes, Doug, that's right. That's not bad at all. Okay, the board is yours. And then there's kind of like subsequent questions that come where again Doug answers and like again gets it right, loves Medea's boo Halloween and and you know and and the host like just is shocked that like you know Doug says something like, "Um, well, you know, you know, if I can spend ninety minutes and, and 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 cry and pray in the same time, then you know, that's money well spent. And, uh, and then the host is so overwhelmed, like he comes over to shake uh, Doug's hand in appreciation, and Doug's like, whoa, whoa, go, go, you know, like afraid of a black man approaching him, <laughs> and, but, you know, then they shake hands. And this, so there's just kind of like this very interesting dynamic going on. And it was, I thought it was really funny, but also brilliant in terms of pointing out what goes on in our culture, because obviously it was pointing out racial injustices that exist, and at the same time, though, bringing out injustices that, that um, happen as a result of poverty. And that, yes, cultural differences are real, racial differences are real, and that there is real uh, racial injustices, but there's also commonality that comes in a very surprising way if we have eyes to see it. You know, it's fun to be able to laugh at injustices in spite of injustices in our world, And yet we come to a text in Habakkuk, we come to maybe even times we feel like we're living in that there seems like there's so much division, and we wonder, you know, what is God doing? And that's really the question that Habakkuk is trying to wrestle with. Last week, we saw kind of Habakkuk's first complaint. Again, if you weren't here last week, the book of Habakkuk is just three chapters, and and it's structured this way. Habakkuk complained, God answers. Habakkuk complained, God answers. And then chapter three is Habakkuk praying. And so we we come into Habakkuk's second complaint in today's text. His first complaint, he is essentially asking these three questions of God. God, are you listening? Do you care? Uh, Will you act? And today, we come to a text where we see a different question that Habakkuk brings. And we heard it read earlier. But I'm just going to read a few verses and then kind of comment on it so we can begin to paint a picture of what Habakkuk was going through, what Israel was going through. And then begin to apply it to ourselves. So let's take a look at um, the complaint that Habakkuk brings, starting in verse 12 here. He says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. So he's referencing here, and this is what how, how God answered in uh, after the first complaint, and that is, that Israel, Judah, was already under oppression from Assyria, and God says, yes, I, would, I will bring justice to these cruel Assyrians, but I will bring justice by, by bringing in the Babylonians, who are even more cruel, more unjust. And so this is a shock. as a shock, this is a shock to, um, to Habakkuk that God would act in this way. And, but here he, he recognizes, okay, God, you have you have ordained this. You are going to be the one who has a plan or in control and going to use the Babylonians to bring justice to the Assyrians, but also recognizing it was still continuing judgment for the people of God. And so, again, he's trying to recognize this, and yet he's still longing for justice and feeling like, God, this doesn't seem quite right that you would do it in this way. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. I think it's, it's, it's a very difficult question for us to wrestle with. Uh, because we really, living in America, no matter how old you are, um, we can't relate to the position that Israel is in. And so I, I wonder for you, if, if, if our country was clearly oppressed by a foreign nation that we thought of just as being so wicked, how would that challenge your faith how would you question God if you were in the same situation? How tied up is your faith with the prominence of America on a global stage? And so if we try to put ourselves in Habakkuk's shoes and the questions that he's bringing to God, um, You know, it's it's different. You know, America's not a Christian nation in the sense of everyone is a Christian, different from Israel and being a theocracy, a nation that is supposed to be following God and God's law. And yet I think there is, for those who are Christians in America, a very close tie that we feel between our faith in God and how America's doing in the world. And so again, just to try to put ourselves in Habakkuk's shoes, how would we feel if that was the situation our country was in? Verse 13, he goes on, though, right? And Now he, bring, he really is bringing in the core of his complaint here. He says, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and can, cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So here, the wicked, he's referring to the Babylonians coming in and swallowing up, uh, really, the Israelites. He's saying, okay, great. The Assyrians will get justice. We don't like the Assyrians, but at the same time, we're going to be oppressed again as the people of God by the Babylonians. And he's saying, you know, certainly we are more righteous than these Babylonians, right? Why would you allow the Babylonians to oppress us? Why would you allow this kind of injustice, God? It seems unjust that you would allow such a wicked nation to oppress the relatively more righteous Israel. Again, he's saying this, recognizing that Judah and Israel have already come under judgment from God, have walked away from really living faithfully to God. And this is a, it's interesting, right? So Israel is in very dark times. They feel a sense of abandonment from God, and yet still Habakkuk can say this, God, why would you allow these wicked Babylonians to swallow up the nation of Israel? I think it's important that we recognize that this is, and I think you know, and you've probably had conversations with friends, this is a key complaint that atheists would say of faith, a faith of any kind. If God is good, if God exists, how can evil and suffering exist? It's really at the core of what um, Habakkuk is saying. He says, it seems unjust of you, God, to allow this to continue. You who are so pure, so holy, How can you allow this to continue? And I think it's important that we recognize that not just atheists have this complaint, that we too as Christians living in a broken world, we often, like Habakkuk, have the same question in our hearts. God, why do you allow evil and suffering to continue? Why do you allow it to happen to me, a Christian who is trying to live faithfully to God? I see all of these people who seemingly do not care a bit about following you and your commands and they seem to be doing fine. Why do you allow evil and suffering to continue? I think it's good for us to make room by recognizing that we too have this doubt. And it makes room when we are in conversations with others who who may be atheists to say, hey, yes, I, I might have some reasons to explain why evil and suffering exists alongside God in this broken world, but I still struggle with this question myself as we live in a broken world. And it is conducive to dialogue as we recognize it in our own hearts. But let's hear how Habakkuk continues. He says, 14, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. Habakkuk is painting this picture that humanity has become like the fish of the sea. Right? They're not sentient beings. There's no ruling as we understand it a hierarchy as we understand it. It's, it's a system in the ocean where just, you know, evil can go unchecked. That's the picture he's painting. There's no authority. There's no rulers. Evil can go unchecked. And he's saying that's, that's what it feels like right now, God. Evil is going unchecked. There's no authority of God going on in this world. I wonder if you stop to imagine our world without rulers of any kind. What would our world be like? Where we often hear people say, yes, you know, you know, humans are basically good. And I would ask, on the lines of what Habakkuk is saying, how committed are you to this belief that humans are basically good? Are you committed to enough to say, okay, let's get rid of parents and bosses and teachers and policemen and politicians to govern over things Are you so committed that humans are basically good that you would trust living in a world with fellow human beings, trust their basic goodness? I think most of us would say, "Ah, I don't think I trust humanity's basic goodness enough to say, let's get rid of all the rules and all the rulers. I think we need some authority and rule in this world. And Habakkuk's painting this picture where it feels like in the times that he's living in that evil is going unchecked. There is no, no authority, no ruling going on. And he goes on, though. He says, verse 15, he brings, he brings all of them up with a hook. And he, he is referring to the Babylonians, just personifying it as one person. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. So we see here this description of how the Babylonians rejoice, rejoice, literally rejoice at the expense of other people's suffering. And that we know from history that, from Mesopotamian rock reliefs, that this is is literally what um, Babylonians did. They would just capture prisoners with a net and just drag them away, essentially. And another practice of theirs was sometimes to hook captives with a hook in the nose and drag them away. you know, Just this painful, humiliating way of treating those who have come under captive. And and also, this practice also, that was very common in those times where if you take over a nation, then you exile many of the best people. And the, the point is then to reduce the likelihood of that nation being able to rise up again against its oppressor. So this picture that Habakkuk is painting gets bleaker and bleaker, right? And he goes on, therefore, um, he makes he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. We see this picture painted of Babylonian being so proud of their might, and it was referred to already earlier in chapter one. Babylon is so proud of its might, so proud of its might and strength and military strength that it's like they worship their own strength and might. They worship their weapons of destruction and the power that it brings them. It sounds weird, but again, it's really not that different from our modern world. If we think on a global stage, who are the ones with military might? Who are the ones who have that kind of power on a global stage and what it brings them? You know, we can think of our own country, we can think of a country like China, we could think of other countries who have the kind of military strength that brings them a certain amount of power, and that it gives their people a certain sense of pride. I don't know if it goes to the point of like worship, but again, it's, it's not that different from our times, and I don't think it's hard for us to relate to hearing these words described. And yet... Habakkuk is painting this really pretty awful picture. Verse 17, he continues, is he then, he again, Babylon, Babylon, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? We hear this basic complaint of Habakkuk repeated, this essential complaint. Are you unjust, God, that you would allow this genocide to continue is what he's saying here. Are you unjust, God, to let Things continue on in this way, to let this killing continue on in this way. And so when we begin to see the picture that Habakkuk has painted, we begin to see it makes a lot of sense that he feels the way he does, that he brings the complaint that he brings to God. And it makes sense given Habakkuk's belief of God's holiness. He's appealing to God's holiness. He's like, God, you are the one who have the purest eyes of all. How can you let this continue? And Habakkuk, unlike us, does not have the privilege of being able to look back at the cross to see where justice and mercy kiss and have some sense of comfort in that. Yes, he could look to the ritualistic sacrificial system of the Jewish faith and see that, yes, God's holiness and his love for people uh, find a, a, a way out through the sacrificial system, that they look to a greater sacrifice. Yet at the same time, he... he, he He's just struggling with understanding how a holy God could allow this to happen to God's people. Habakkuk is questioning God's sense of justice. How can a just God use a wicked nation to punish the Israelites? It's an interesting question because I think we struggle with this too. We see this in life. You know, and we we can relate to it in different ways. And I think it's important to say this. Sometimes our answer to this question as Christians is, well all sins are equal and we've all sinned and so we don't have any place to judge others. And there's some truth to that. But I think the part I mean the, the, the part that's true about that is that all sins separate us from God. That's what the Bible teaches. But what is not true? from what scripture says, is is not all sins are not the same. All sins separate us from God. They're the same in that sense, but all sins are not the same. Some sins are more heinous than other sins. God would not be a just God if he said cursing someone is exactly the same as killing someone. He'd be a very bad judge if he literally equated those two as equally heinous. They're not equally heinous. They both separate us from God. We are both, we're held accountable for both cursing someone and killing someone, but they're not the same. But the question we have to ask ourselves, and Habakkuk should ask himself, is how do we know if one person or one nation is really more wicked than another person or nation? Can we, as an individual, really judge if one person or nation is more wicked than another person or nation, the Bible's basic message is that all people, and therefore all nations, stand in need of God's grace, stand in need of God's redemption. And one person or nation may actually be, in fact, worse than another person or nation, but we don't know. We can't judge, only God can. Only God truly knows. And we think, right, we think of Jesus' harshest words were for the seemingly nicest, godliest, most spiritual people, seemingly the most perfect people in Israel, and God says to them that they are whitewashed tombs, that they're clean on the outside but dirty on the inside. Only God can really judge if one nation or person is wick more wicked than another, and that is not our job, and it's not Habakkuk's job. And yet, his questions are very understandable. They are questions that we have asked. And I'll say this about where this sermon is going to wrap up in a little bit. It's not going to be wrapped up in a nice little bow today. We try to do that as as preachers, wrap up sermons in a nice little bow. But this section really doesn't end that way, and I think it's appropriate to end the way it ends in chapter two, verse one, for our own sanctification. Verse one says this in chapter two, I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out and see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. is gonna go to the watchtower and wait for God to respond, maybe even rebuke him for his complaint. Usually the prophet's role is to stand at the watchtower, uh, ensuring that the people of God are following the covenant that God has made with his people. And here there's a reversal. Habakkuk is saying, I stand at the watchtower, at my watchpost, asking God to hold himself true to his covenant, to his promises, to being this holy God. And he's going to watch and wait for God's answer in the midst of this great dark hour that he feels like they're in. He wants to hold God to his character, which feels funny saying out loud, but that is what he's calling upon God. But I think there's something that Habakkuk teaches us here in the way he brings this very honest complaint and question to God. He really teaches us here what emotional health and emotional spirituality looks like by bringing this honest complaint and waiting on God to answer his complaint. And I think this idea of waiting on the Lord that we hear repeated in Scripture in different parts is a form of healthy spirituality that we often struggle with mightily in a hectic, social, media driven culture that just wants to jump from thing to thing to thing. More often than not, rather than pursue emotional health and spirituality, Spirituality, we spiritually bypass our emotions because it just seems easier and more convenient. Spiritually bypass emotions that have been given to us by God made in his image to reflect his emotions. Sometimes we forget that. An author, Alison Cook, says, spiritual bypassing is not healthy for your process of growth towards wholeness, You can't heal what you don't acknowledge. You can't transform what you've pretended doesn't exist. There's a time and place for speaking truth to ourselves and loved ones when we're struggling. But please hear me say emotions are not the enemy. Anger, sadness, guilt, fear, even shame are cues. They need our attention and understanding, not our religious platitudes. And she gives some examples of these platitudes, which I've slightly amended just to make it a little bit more clear. But here's an example. Emotional health says, one, uh, first example, a part of me feels sad today. I'm curious what this is about. And this is the part I added. Lord, help me to explore that. Spiritual bypassing says, you don't need to be sad. God has given you so much. Emotional health says, I feel so angry at him. I don't want to act out of anger, but I do want to understand where this anger is coming from. And I added, Lord, help me to explore this anger. Spiritual bypassing says, ask God to take your anger away. Emotional health says, I want to forgive, but my heart is far from it. I'm going to find someone to talk to honestly about it. Lord, help me to have the courage to find someone to talk to about this. Spiritual bypassing says, God forgave you, so you should forgive others. Just turn the other cheek. Emotional health says, I'm fearful what they might think of me. I want to understand that so it doesn't rule me. Lord, help me to not be ruled by fear, but by love. Spiritual bypassing says, Starve your fear, it's the enemy of faith. I don't know if you begin to see the difference. Spiritual bypassing tries to quickly go to a place of finding some religious reason or platitude to not have to feel that thing anymore. Spiritualizing our faith. We don't, Hapakuk's not spiritualizing his faith. It's raw and honest and recognizing the reality of what he's going through, what Israel's going through, and what he feels about it and he brings it to the Lord, and he waits upon the Lord. Are you willing to do that in whatever anger, fear, sadness that you have? Do you just try to quote a quick promise of God to yourself and move on? Or do you say, this emotion I'm feeling is a cue from God. I'm made in the image of God, and I feel in the same way that he feels, and I will try to understand what this feeling points to, and I will bring this feeling to God to help me know what this feeling is about. All of you have been through dark hours. Maybe you've... Maybe you're going through it right now. I feel like our church has... Quite a few people have struggled with chronic health for many years, my wife being one of those. I know there are people who've experienced great dysfunction in the family that they've grown up in. You might have gone through abuse in your family. You might feel like you're literally just trying to survive to the next day. And it seems so much easier to just find a spiritual way to bypass all of those negative feelings. And Habakkuk, and the Lord through Habakkuk says, Bring those complaints and feelings to God and wait upon him. And really the, the main point of this text, I think, is wait upon God even in the darkest hour because he will answer. Wait upon God even in the darkest hour because he will answer. You may not answer in the way you want. He may not answer in your time frame, but he will answer. So wait upon God. For me, God called me to faith in the midst of my own suffering, of of not feeling loved, of not feeling like life was worth living. And for me, that means that, relatively speaking, I don't question God as easily in times of darkness, but yet I still do. Somehow I can feel like in my darkest hours, I can both feel a sense of despair and at the very same time, hold on tightly that God exists, that God cares, that God will act or is acting, and that he loves me and he is with me. And I can feel both at the same time. Trust his goodness amidst the darkness. I encourage you to bring your pain and suffering and complaints to God and wait for him to answer them. Wait upon the Lord. We see this waiting on the Lord throughout Scripture. Sometimes it's hard to see it in Scripture because things get tied up relatively quickly in terms of reading it from chapter to chapter. But how long did the wilderness feel like to the Israelites? How long did it feel like for Israelites? In these days of the minor prophets, when it felt like God had abandoned them and they were wondering, where is the Messiah going to come from? How long did it wait for that person who was born lame and was lame every day of their life and felt like there was no hope? And then God came in Jesus Christ and healed them. It's like 10 verses when we read it in the gospels. I'm sure it didn't feel like 10 verses to that lame person. To the person who was born blind and spent their whole life blind and Christ comes and heals them. That happens probably in twelve verses. I'm sure it didn't feel like twelve verses to that person as they wrestled with waiting on God. And when Jesus came and says, What do you want to the lame man? What a lame question to ask a lame man. Duh, I want to walk. What do you want from God? Bring that to him. Wait upon him. Wrestle with him. Let's pray.